BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to On The Fly. It's our second episode of the official Pelicans podcast for HoopBall.com, providing in-flight insight for all Pella fans out there. In today's episode, we want to get into the J.J. Redick interview with Zach Lowe, and we also have to discuss Lonzo Ball, possible LeVar Ball drama already. Maybe, maybe not. We'll discuss that. And more importantly, we're going to talk about what Lonzo really brings on the court for the New Orleans Pelicans. I'm your host, Nick Garisco, and as always, I'm here with Pelicans expert Michael Pelichet. You can follow us on, on Twitter, at Mike underscore Pelicans, and I'm at Fantasy Law Guy. Michael, let's tip off by posing another question here. What did you think about the Zach Lowe interview with J.J. Redick? It was an hour long. I mean, it, these are one of the best ways to get to know a player what were your thoughts i enjoyed it i thought you know jj reddick seemed like a pretty thoughtful guy he definitely came across as someone who considers a lot of things before he does it uh he seemed like an open-minded guy uh i was very curious to see what brought him to the pelicans and, and what sort of differentiated us from from other teams and I just thought it was good. I like the conversation. I, I always enjoy Lowe's podcast. I think he's one of the best. And um, yeah, what about you? And he mentioned he mentioned that 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 part was interesting. What he said, why he really came to the Fa- uh, not the Falcons. Why did I say the Falcons there? The New Orleans Pelicans uh, got the Saints rival on the mind here for some reason. But the New Orleans Pelicans, and I I, I didn't realize this e- either. But he was one of the biggest factors that Reddick mentioned on that hour-long podcast with Zach Lowe. And by the way, Zach Lowe just does a great job over there for ESPN. But but uh, it, it was a great interview, really. And one of the main factors, he said, was to play with Drew Holiday, right? I mean, he – I have a direct quote here, so I'm not misquoting him. He Reddick said at one point, I just enjoy the way – he's talking about he as in Drew. I enjoy the way Drew plays and competes. His priority is family and basketball, and that's something I can relate to. And skill set-wise, he's somebody I've always wanted to play with. Defensively, he's unbelievable, and he's a guy who can play with or without the ball. He's a total stud to me. Uh, Michael, what what are your thoughts on that, and uh, do you agree with them? 
I think that Drew's definitely all of the things that Reddick said he was. What what I don't really understand, and this is something that Lowe actually asked in a very politically correct way, was you know Drew, despite being a very very good player, I think at this point it's it's somewhat unanimous that you know people assume that like Drew really is that impactful, but. I don't think anybody or I don't think a lot of people think that Drew is a top five, top 10 player. And typically when you hear words like that coming from another player and, and, and what drove them to play with this particular guy, it's more of the megastars, not the guys who are very, very good, but aren't quite at that level. So, I mean, Drew hasn't even made an all-star team since, since Philly. He's made one. And I, again, no knock on Drew. I love Drew and, and, and both professionally in terms of what he does on the court and then also just the person he appears to be, all those things. I mean, I, I love the guy, but I, I don't I don't understand the I, I guess the degree to which Reddick was saying that Drew was the draw. You know, I, I don't know. Like, what did you think about it? I definitely thought it was interesting. Uh, I agree with you in the sense to where, uh, in the sense of Reddick probably had other choices to go to. Like, he could have been that you know spot up three point shooter or that or that that veteran guy that maybe the Lakers could have signed. He could have gone to maybe a team that was, uh, he could have ring chased. He could have gone to a team that was, I guess, closer to winning a uh, a title than the Pelicans are right now. But he decided he wanted to play the Pelicans. One of that, one of those reasons was Drew Holiday. He also mentioned David Griffin and, uh, a variety of other reasons that he came here. He, he liked the direction the franchise was heading in. But he mentioned at one point, and I have to get your take on this, that uh, Zach Lowe talked about whether he was going to get significant playing time or not. And he mentioned at one point, he doesn't really care if he starts or not. And I know players say that. I get that players say that, you know, not just for the brand, but also just to seem like good sports. And Reddick's a veteran. He's not going to say anything wrong to the media to where it's going to get blown up or anything like that. But he actually genuinely seemed to actually believe that he really doesn't care if he starts or not. Uh, and, and one example that they gave was in Philadelphia when I believe Brett Brown told him, like, uh, in, I think it was the second day of training camp, he said, hey, we're going to bring you off the bench for Markel Fultz. And Reddick talked about on the, on the Zach Lowe podcast that he did not agree with the decision but he was going to do what's best for the team. And that was something I really liked hearing. Yeah, I liked hearing it. I mean, I, I like you, it's kind of hard to sometimes pick apart what is said just by a person who's savvy with media and is sort of catering to what people want to hear. Uh, he's, he, like you said, I, I really do think he, he meant it, but I guess, yeah, I mean, it's, it'll be interesting. And I, I, I this is something that uh, McNamara had said a very long time ago that I thought was a good point was that, it is different, you know, when someone like Reddick might more easily accept coming off the bench than someone like Ingram, who's about to get his next big contract, right? So, I mean, it's a different stage of his career. Ingram is, is someone who could potentially be a max player either on his next contract or the contract after it, depending on how well he does. So he's he has a lot invested in this year. Right. And so I think that's what makes it interesting. But yeah. we spoke about this on the last podcast, though, about Ingram maybe maybe – it would be better for Ingram to come off the bench. And I'm sure he might not see that with, you know, a contract year on the line or and and he might want to be with the starters. Maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe he just feels that he's uh, worthy of starting for the, the Pelicans, of course. But 
at the same time, it doesn't seem like the Pelicans have a lot of shooters, really, in the starting lineup. Like, if they go with the starting lineup of Favors at the five, uh, Zion at the four, uh, Drew Holiday, Lonzo Ball, and, you know, Ingram, other than Ingram and maybe Drew, it really doesn't seem like they have a lot of uh, shooters. I mean, I guess Zion would be taking shots, too. But do you, do you agree with that assessment, or would you prefer – uh, J.J. Redick being in the starting lineup. Yeah, and I, I want to kind of keep this concise because I think we had actually talked about this last podcast. I definitely have always been of the opinion that on the court, I, I think Redick is a much better fit for the other four starters, and I don't really think it's close. And I, that's not a knock on Ingram. It's more of I think Ingram gives them more of what they already have, which is guys who can create, but it doesn't really give them – shooting which they they kind of need in that lineup but they just don't have a whole lot of or really any of it honestly of the four guys that you mentioned so i i think it's a pretty clear on-court thing it's a reddick is a is a better fit in my opinion but you know these things do factor in so i think that's that's the more nuanced part of it is how do you balance both winning on the you know in the individual situations where you're putting your starting lineup in there and, and outscoring your opponents but at the same time putting your players in a position where someone's not disgruntled. And if, if Ingram, again, I don't know much about Ingram, you know, he seems like a kind of reserved guy, but you know, maybe it does matter to him. Maybe, but, or maybe I think if you pitch it to him, you say, look, you know, you have four other guys in that starting lineup who can put up points. If you come off the bench, we can still get you to finish games and you can get a lot more shots than you would get otherwise. And, and not like this is a, a perfect proxy for what you'll earn, but the more points per game you get, I, I think it, it's a stronger case typically to get a bigger contract. And maybe that's how you pitch it. But how he takes that, I think you just have to know him. Do you even say that to him if you think he's going to react negatively to it? Yeah, especially when you already know that J.J. Redick has been in this situation before and did not react negatively right. because he is such a veteran. He knows uh, he knows the NBA well, and he we've seen firsthand how he did react and he didn't cause a fuss or anything like that. He's perfectly fine. You can hear it. I mean, he seems genuine in the interview. You can hear him say, you know, if I come off the bench, whatever helps, whatever the coach believes helps the team win, then that's what we're going to do. And that was kind of the theme of the interview. I thought really right, Michael. I mean that JJ Redick was very team first and I'm not expecting him to get up there and talk about his selfish goals of, hitting however many threes or whatever it is you know very few players do that they're not dumb but at the same time you can kind of tell when you listen to someone talk for one hour you can kind of get to know them from perspective like okay does this guy seem genuine or does is he just kind of saying all these scripted responses that maybe his agent has helped him with or his pr assistant has helped him with and is just kind of going through the motions of the interview, so so whereas he doesn't screw up. But Reddick was very uh, insightful and very comfortable up there, and he seemed very very genuine. And that was one of the main takeaways that I had from the interview. I I want to agree with you because I I definitely that was the assessment that I had, but I disagree in that I don't think from one hour you can tell. And it's funny, you said gentlemen, like I'm thinking about dating scenarios and I know you wouldn't do this because you're married, but like if you're dating a girl, like you're putting your, especially at the very beginning, you're putting your very best foot forward. I mean, now the difference obviously is that JJ Redick is there in his late thirties or mid thirties. So like he's, there's a long history of his interaction with media and stuff like that. I think 
that's right. why it's important to take like the whole timeline. But I'm being nitpicky and just trying to throw stuff in there. Yeah. So I was uh, happy to get the, to yeah. know. I was happy. No, no. I mean, you have a good yeah. point. I mean, one hour. We certainly. I certainly don't know the intricacies of JJ Reddick, but I was happy to get to know him more than I did. And I, I can't. I can't. It came across to me as a very positive interview. My thoughts on JJ Reddick were, uh, were were very positive after the interview, and I got to know him on a level that I, I just. I just really never listened to him talk other than post-game interviews before. And yeah. he was very articulate and he seemed very unselfish. Uh, that was, that was kind of my main takeaway there, but you never really know what's hiding on the outside. I don't mean to be cryptic about this, but, but let's, let's get back to the content here. The interview. Uh, one of the things I found interesting was that he kind of made it a point to say that, David Griffin's one of his main themes of the offseason is to not put pressure on Zion Williamson, right? Like all the moves he made in the offseason were to take the pressure off Zion and not kind of make him this guy where the he's going to be the offensive focal point and uh, a guy where the media can kind of attack him for things that he d- did wrong. We spoke a little about this in the last podcast. But in terms of signing Derek Favors to play the five and, and drafting Jackson Hayes to do that in the future, and also Reddick seemed to suggest that Griffin's praise to Drew Holiday in the media was intentional. Like when he called him an MVP candidate and said this was Drew's team, Reddick seemed to suggest that that was a calculated statement to the media again, with the motive to take pressure off of Zion Williamson. Did you get that impression? I did. And I think if you're looking at the situation, it's nice to have it corroborated by a player who actually knows the inner workings of the team. I think it's one thing to see it from the outside. And and what I saw from the outside was that basically Griffin was structuring it so Zion didn't have the pressure and that it would fall on Drew. And I think that did two things. I, I think it allows Zion to more easily shift into the NBA uh, Redick even talked about all the responsibilities that he has off the court because of his shoe deal, um, all of the hype surrounding him. And then I think also saying that kind of stuff allows Drew to sort of grow into something that he's never been. He, at least as a Pelican, he's never been the number one option here. And I think all the praise from Griffin was very much, you know, trying to, to make sure that Drew knows that, look, we, we think there's more from you. And I, I think to hear that from someone and to believe to be believed in, like that I think it makes a difference and so I'm excited and I think one of the cool things that Reddick had said was you know not just helping him on the court but just sort of like I said with the responsibilities and all the weight that's on Zion's shoulders just helping him you know any way that he can as a mentor or whatever he didn't speak too long about it but I I certainly got the impression that he's going to make it an effort to make sure that Zion basically gets I don't know that he just slides into the NBA more easily. Reddick has never missed the playoffs, right? Like they, they talked about that streak for a long time. He's been playing in the NBA for 13 seasons, uh, six seasons with Orlando, four seasons with the Clippers, and two with Philadelphia. And one of those seasons he was traded in the midseason. But he was 13 for 13, and he said that he, had a, he, said that he cared about his playoff streak, and he used to not care about it. But now he does, and Zach Lowe asked him, uh, point blank, 
do you it's do you care about it and do you expect that to streak to continue this year with the New Orleans Pelicans? And I love that question because on our last podcast we talked about expectations, we talked about playoffs here, and Reddick had somewhat of a uh, grounded response here. He wasn't he wasn't you know oh yeah I I expect yeah we're definitely gonna make the playoffs. It was he said I, quote I expect a challenge for the playoffs. Yes, we'll be right there. And then he mentioned that there are some things that they had to work out with the teams, not with the team not having played together for a long time. And uh, there are certain positions that everybody needs to fill. And there's just not a lot of chemistry there yet. And he kind of implied that they might get off to a slow start. But then in the end, he said that he hopes to compete for the seventh or eighth seed uh, in order to keep his playoff streak alive. Uh, Michael, what was your take on that segment of the podcast? I, I think I would have liked a little bit more. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I pre- yeah, I mean, I appreciate. Okay, so I, hearing players talk sometimes, they just say, like you said, the things that people want to hear. Right. So it was interesting that he said something that was more cautious. Yeah, I think calculated. That I mean, he's really thought about this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, look, I mean, I don't think the Pelicans are trying trying to win 50 games this year. I think they'd be ecstatic if they did. But I, I really do think they're going to be, I think I said 43 to 46 last time. And I think mm-hmm. like you, if you if you take that win total, I mean, that is that is in that 7 to 8 range. I mean, that's exactly what it'll be. So, I mean, you know, J.J. Redick and I are clearly on the same page about all this stuff, um, <laughs> well, which is good. nice. <laughs> yeah. now, Zach Lowe so, even know. made a joke that – Zach Lowe even made a joke that uh, he picked the wrong conference to go into when he decided to go yeah. – to the New Orleans Pelicans here. He talked a lot about uh, team building exercises, him being a veteran. That's kind of where the inter- interview went in the second half of it was kind of talking about things that he could take from other teams and apply them to the Pelicans. Now, he was very cautious, and he said that – Reddick said that you know he's not going to overstep immediately, right? Like we have to give Alvin Gentry and David Griffin a chance – to you know, prove themselves in the locker room and to do things the way that they think it should be done. He's not going to try to implement things and go out of his way and try to be that guy. You know, right. uh, there's one part, there's one aspect, there's a balance there. You want to be a leader, of course, because you're probably the, one of the senior players on the roster, of course. But at the same time, you are new to the team, right? I mean, he is new to the team. He hasn't played with the Pelicans before. A lot of these players haven't played together, and. And there's also Drew Holiday to, you know, he's also going to be seen as one of the primary leaders of the team. And I know Zion's a rookie, but just because his presence alone, Zion's going to be one of the leaders of the team. I mean, initially, I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, people, his, his words and his actions are going to have massive weight in the locker room. So Reddick was cautious to say that he wants to bring stuff from other team that he knows works. And he said that every team's different. So I thought he answered that really well, but he mentioned one thing right there. Uh, he mentioned team dinners on the road, right? Uh, what, what was your impression of that? Because I've never heard of that before, but I like the sound of it. So it's funny. Uh, I think I'm going to bring in some personal stuff. So I, the people who listen, I played college soccer at a very small D3 school. Uh, we weren't very good. And uh, but one thing that we did do very well was <laughs> we dined really, really well on the road. Uh so every single time, like this is like this is terrible to say, but one of the most exciting things about playing on that team for me was that on the bus we had all kinds of candy bars 
Like we had just un- limitless Twix and Snickers and all that stuff. But that also, when we go on the road, we'd have these really, really nice dinners that our coach, I think he fundraised really well. Um, so he would we'd be taking these nice restaurants and get these gigantic meals. And it was just always a lot of fun. And, and so, I mean, look, again, this is like a stupid soccer story from my like not that impressive athletic career versus pro teams. But I think there really is something to bonding, you know, being somewhere else and, and spending time together. Reddick mentioned that it, it was different depending on where they were. He said, I think with the Clippers, it might have been four people. It might have been way more just depending on the night and right. that some people didn't come. And it wasn't it wasn't, hey, you got to come or whatever. But basically that, you know, I think he said, regardless of where he was, that those those were great dinners and they were great bonding environments. Right. It might not help on the court per se, but it helps off the court, which can trickle. I mean, that locker room chemistry can trickle. And that's one of the things we mentioned last podcast that we really loved seeing was that Jackson Hayes and Zion Williamson and Nikhil Alexander Walker were all hanging out together all the time, like pretty much all offseason. We've seen them at several events, whether it's charity events or LSU games, Saints games, and they've all been together. And that kind of uh, bodes well for maybe implementing team dinners on the road. And I, I like that idea a lot. I don't, I don't know if I was going to go as far as uh, the Philadelphia 76ers did when Reddick was there, when they said that they were all, all the players were required to give a 30-minute presentation on the topic of their choice, or the topic that meant something to them. Uh, and there were some interesting ones that Reddick spieled off here. We don't want to get into all that. But different teams have different ways of bonding. And that's what the Pelicans are actually opening up with is a what Reddick mentioned he has to go back for because uh, he trains in New York and he's they're opening up training camp with uh, a, a team bonding experience. Yeah, and I thought it was cool too. I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, but they actually went out. It was a lot of them. It wasn't the entire team and they played golf. And uh, nice. <laughs> so watching like, the difference between someone like Frank Jackson, who I don't know if Frank's ever played golf or anything like that, but just watching one shot with him, it was very fluid, you know, smooth, all that. And then Jackson Hayes had a club that was probably really missized to be fair to him, but just like him trying to hit was very, very different from Jackson. And they just look, you know, we talked about this a lot last podcast. These guys just seem to love hanging out with each other. And like, yeah, again, all of this doesn't matter if they suck. If they suck, people aren't going to be happy. You don't like 21 teams aren't like the best, the coolest place to be. But, you know, if they're good and if they have room for growth and they really enjoy being around each other, it's at least a really good start. And it, and like I think Reddick even said that they have a real team building thing coming up. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly how long it was from the podcast, but basically they had a couple guys coming in. Uh, former black Olympians that had done like uh, something really, really, I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, they had like one, I think their events and track yeah. and field or something like that. They made a Yeah, they broke statement. some barriers there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think he said that like he had written a paper on those guys and he was really looking forward yeah. to it. Um, so it was cool. It was a cool thing to like that they are going to be doing something like that. And yeah, I, it's awesome. Okay, let me tell you what my favorite part of the entire interview was. Okay. Because I'm sitting here asking you, the expert, all the questions. But I I have to give my spiel here. And I mentioned earlier that he seemed genuine. I I liked kind of getting to know J.J. Reddick. But my favorite part of the entire interview was when Reddick was talking about his movement off the ball. Okay, And it's not just because it's so relevant for basketball. And I want to ask you about it. But 
uh, first, let me tell the story here, uh, just for the audience. He was telling a story about how he, during his off-season training in New York, and players will see how hard he works off the ball in games and fighting through screens and running and hustling. And they see what kind of shape he's in at his age. For I think he's 35 years old. And they'll, they kind of think to themselves, hey, they, you know, if I had the ability to do all the things that he does off the ball, I could be a dominant player. So they'll ask Reddick during the games if they can train with him in New York in the offseason. And Reddick always accepts. And he always says, hey, I train at this place in New York at 9 a.m. every morning. Uh, and he's even gotten some verbal commitments from people. And, and they never show. And I, I just want to say this. I absolutely, this is the part that I love. Reddick seemed like he was very serious about being in great shape and working off the ball. And before I kind of get your basketball perspective on it, I want to just give you my general sports perspective on it because it's honestly, I don't want to say it's a pet peeve of mine, but it's a passion of mine here. Uh, It's something that I think sports fans are kind of misguided on. I absolutely love when athletes do everything they possibly can to be in great shape. I think that sports or being a professional athlete is their job and their livelihood, and I think it should be 24-7. And I know that sounds strict, but I believe that dieting, And staying in shape plays a massive role in not only staying healthy during the season, like actual with actual injuries, staying healthy, but also thriving as a professional athlete. I think in the fourth quarter, when everybody is tired and people, that's when people make mistakes, right, Michael? I mean, you know this from soccer. And I just love to see athletes like Reddick, who may not be the most gifted natural athlete, but they they overtrain in other areas, like his like his what he does off ball, his smarts, his endurance. He he stays in shape. He's dieting, and he they do all that to keep them afloat, to keep them hanging around at age thirty five with all these other athletes to the point where all these other you know better natural athletes are asking him, hey, like I need to do what you do, and I, I really respect that a lot. I, I think it's it's honestly just a huge pet peeve of mine. When I see players like posting on Instagram, you know, with their McDonald's and I'm like, what are you doing? You're a professional athlete. You, you shouldn't be eating that. Hire a nutritionist. Hire a professional chef. You know, I, I think athletes should honestly be very strict with it. And, and, and before I put the ball in your court talking about what, what it actually means on the court, I, I, I'm going to give a little a story of my own here. Uh, when I worked for the Texans. You know, I got to see J.J. Watt, right, Michael? And, and you, you know who J.J. Watt is. And, and he's the standard for work ethic, right? I mean, he treats this sport like it's a full-time job. And that means, you know, he's not relaxing on his diet or workouts when he's not in the facility or during the off-season. And, you know, I don't know if any of this has changed. But when I was there, he, you know, he doesn't drink alcohol. You know, he doesn't go out to bars because... You know, he has to get to bed early. Alcohol dehydrates you. So he's not going to be doing that because it affects with his, 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 his ability as a player. It affects with his training. It, it messes it, his alcohol, sleep up too. It messes his sleep up. It makes his workout worse that he just worked out that day. And, you know, you know he's doing two a day. So, you know, every piece of food that goes into J.J. Watt's mouth is okayed by his personal chef and his nutritionist. He's always hydrating. He's always stretching. He's always working out. And, and, and it's a true story. J.J. Watt has a cot, his own personal cot in the team facility to take scheduled power naps between team meetings and workouts because everything is so structured. 
And this happens during the offseason, too. You don't see J.J. Watt out, you know, at clubs drinking. And I know a lot of athletes do it. And, hey, look, nutrition and sports science are getting better over time. But ultimately, you know, to wrap this up, I, I think professional athletes in general are way too lenient. And they're too lax on their diets and their workouts. And, and we hear stories all the time like, you know, oh, player X shed 10 pounds of fat and added off muscle this offseason. Or, oh, he cut out fast foods and sweets. Or, oh, he's doing yoga and he expects to maintain better health this season. And we praise the athletes that do that. But to me, that should be the expectation. That should honestly be the expectation. That should be part of their job. And I think we don't criticize the players who aren't doing that enough. But anyway, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. I just think it's a very underrated and hidden aspect of success in all of sports and definitely basketball where you have, you know, four quarters, 48 minutes, and it's 82 games of a season. This is a long season, and I just loved – that was my main takeaway of this. I just love that J.J. Redick was kind of the standard on who people want to train with J.J. Redick, and you're seeing it. They're not because Redick has the work ethic and these other players don't. So – Anyway, I'm going to put the ball in your court here. I'll get off my soapbox, like I said. I just wanted, that's just a huge passion of mine there. And I just think it's a very underrated aspect. But let's talk about what that off ball movement does from a basketball perspective. I will, but I do want to say, I think, okay, so I disagree in the sense, I do agree that in any professional capacity, whatever it is, and obviously in, in sports, it's part of it is staying in shape, eating healthily, and all of that. I would say that I don't think that the criticism of people who don't take care of their bodies is wrong for professional athletes, but I also think they're not paid to eat well. They're paid to be good, and I think there are— But that plays into it, though. I I, I don't disagree. That's my point. I don't disagree. I think think it's a mix, though, because there are people who are professional athletes because they love the sport and they want to be the best. There are also people who happen to be extraordinarily gifted in those areas— and they are in the league because it's a job that makes sense for them. In the same way that, that that's people, very true. So, like some people have jobs that are nine to five because it's just what right. they love or whatever. And some people do it just because it, it happens to be the nexus of what they're good at and what will provide them the lifestyle that they want. So, I do agree that's with true. you. Though. Yeah. One of my main takeaways from the Texans, actually, other than J.J. Watt being a beast, of course, was that you would be surprised in an NFL locker room how few players actually really love football, right? Like, And I'm sure. sure it's the same in basketball, right? Some of these guys are were just born with great genes. They're really tall, you know, not to, not to simplify it, of course, but they've just grown up playing basketball. That's always what they were, what they think they were meant to do. But professional athletes always don't love their sport. I mean, that's a great counterpoint to what I was saying. I guess what I was trying to say is that I think that if you're trying to be great at your sport, I think nutrition and being in shape in general is a very underappreciated aspect of getting to greatness. I guess that was my point there. And I completely agree with that. And I think I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the example that's set. I think if you're ever around someone who takes such good care of everything that they do, I think it rubs off in the same way that, I mean, you weren't on the Texans playing, but if you're around and you're in an environment where you see something like that, it stands out. And I think 
you know, it's a lot easier when someone like J.J. Redick tells you something and you see the effort that he puts in to everything that he does to take him seriously versus someone who you see loafing all the time and tries to tell you something that they would think that you should do. Like, yeah, why would I listen to you? You don't even take care of yourself. I think I think it gives you credibility. Um, and I think in terms of what you're talking about on the court, where it really matters, yeah. and this is this is really interesting. So I love I, – I, I just the concept of shooting is – fascinating to me i don't know why i've always liked it so much i just like people who can shoot and what's very different about someone like jj reddick from most three-point shooters isn't just the volume that he takes them it's the fact that a lot of times jj reddick is shooting the ball before he's even facing the basket so he's coming off his screens running his full speed like what you said it's not as necessarily as quick or as fast as other players but he's running very quickly he's getting the ball and then before he's even squared up He's into his shot, and being able to take shots at those angles is extremely, and, and with that quickness, is so important because it's hard to stop. Because you like in the NBA, it's not just how good you are at something; it's not just being able to take a shot and make it or whatever. It's it's how quickly you can get into what you're good at. And and Redick happens to be a phenomenal shooter who gets into his shot. His shot prep is excellent. And there really aren't a lot of guys like that. You can talk about Kyle Korver. And I know I think Lowe mentioned Wayne Ellington, Redick, um, you know, Clay Thompson. Well, he was sticking with Duke players when he did that. But no, yeah, but Clay Thompson not, was mentioned. Wait, was Ellington, Ellington was UNC, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, my bad, my bad. And Clay Thompson, I can't remember where Clay, he went to some, he was like 11th or 12th pick. Washington Clay wasn't State? Duke. He mentioned Washington, yeah, Washington cool. State or something cool. like that. Anyway, Clay was mentioned because he had such a quick release when he got the I ball, see. like with the quickest okay. release. That makes sense. But yeah, it's it's really big. And I think on a team where you don't have a whole lot of shooting, it's really important because you get a lot of uh, positive things off those actions where Reddick's curling around because the people who are, there's two people defending an action, right? So like let, in this case, so Reddick's running off a screen. So whoever's chasing around Reddick and then the guy who's saying the screen has a defender as well. So that defender has to make a choice. If if the, if his teammate's not going to get around the screen fast enough to contest Reddick's shot, he has to step up. So, well, what happens if he steps up improperly? What happens, like, okay, well, maybe they switch real quickly and then there's a mismatch with someone like Zion being defended by a guy who's 6'3 or 6'4 and 200 pounds. He's got a 60 or 70 pound weight advantage in addition to height. Like, all these things unravel in really cool ways when you have that kind of lethal skill set. And like you said, the benefits are beyond just that. Yeah, I liken it to, and I hate to make another football analogy here, but I actually liken it to uh, being a wide receiver and being difficult to cover. Uh, and not just one-on-one isolation routes, but a lot of times the team, smart teams are now are moving their top wide receiver to the slot because they know that the number one cornerback, the outside cornerback, won't follow them into the slot because they're and play nickelback because they're not used to uh, play, bad, it's a totally different music. position. Yeah, it's a to- to- yeah, exactly. The nickel back there, that was that was good reference there. But they're not used to all the chaos and clutter that comes with playing on the inside. And those nickel backs have to be good tacklers. Uh, but so usually, when a great receiver like Michael Thomas, for example, since it's a local podcast, will uh, or New Orleans podcast, I should say, will move into the slot, usually that great corner won't follow them. And I kind of liken JJ Reddick's off ball movement to that when he's. Uh, weaving in and out of screens and dodging players and, and doing what he can to get open on certain spots of the floor, it makes it difficult for whoever's covering him if they're in man 
man-to-man uh, -man coverage, and then it makes it difficult for them to follow them. And even if they're in zone, it makes it difficult for the people in zone to know when to pick him up, right, and, and when to latch on to him as part of that zone. So, so very fascinating stuff there, and it definitely makes J.J. Redick a much more valuable and better basketball player. And when you add in the fact that he's played in the NBA for 13 seasons – and I believe he graduated from Duke. I believe he was a senior at Duke. So, so I mean, playing under Coach K for three or four years, I mean, that's that's probably 17 years of working on this craft. And you can see why other players want that. Well, and even said that, Reddick said that one of the hardest things to teach is the mindset that you have to be in to do this. And I think if you watch players, it's, first of all, like, let's take it back to like, you know, just anybody who's played basketball knows especially as you get older, the most annoying per person to guard sometimes is just this guy who is just constantly moving around. If you're not in that kind of shape and you can't keep up, it's just exhausting. And in basketball... Yeah, it's the guy at the rec who is always... Like, he's not... Moving. He doesn't actually play basketball, but he's but he's decent enough to where you have to guard him, but he's more... He's like a cyclist or something or a jogger, yeah. and he's just constantly running around just because he's using that as his workout. You know, he's not yeah. there to play basketball. He's there to get in a workout. Yeah, and it's frustrating to guard those guys. And I think, you know, it just... Again, it's just a really valuable NBA skill. It's sort of... There's not a lot of guys like that. And I think that's what makes Redick so special. So, Yeah, let, let's – hey, I mean, this is a great conversation about J.J. Redick. I mean, I, and I think we could go even further, but uh, we're a decent chunk into this podcast. Here. We haven't even mentioned Lonzo Ball yet, right? And Lonzo Ball, before we get into him, we talked about Brandon Ingram a little bit. And I do want to uh, open up this conversation by saying it is great news that Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram are practicing in full and fully healthy, huh, Michael? Yeah, it's great. I, it's something that I, I thought they'd be healthy, but I mean, it's never it's never a bad thing to have that verified that you're actually going to have them to start the year and that they're not going to be held back or whatever. So Lavar Ball is making news, unfortunately, already for the New Orleans Pelicans, and he's been pretty tame or quiet, I should say. Uh, since Lonzo became a New Orleans Pelican. Uh, but on his show, and I believe it's streamed on Facebook, uh, I've never seen it, but on his show, uh, they were talking about the Big Baller brand, and somebody mentioned whether they should rename the Big Baller brand. And LeVar Ball, which is, of course, Lonzo Ball's uh, dad, said that would be like if somebody told me to rename you uh, because you're damaged goods. And that was the, uh, I don't know if it's an analogy or the comparison that he used, but he's already tried to defend it by saying that uh, it was taken out of context. But I don't know, we kind of we saw the whole context there. But he already said that people were kind of misconstruing the comparison that he made. Uh, do you make anything of this, uh, calling Lonzo Ball damaged goods, or do you think that he was just kind of, you know, talking out of his butt maybe, and it just slipped, and there's really not a fractured relationship there. What's your take on the whole situation? Um, you know, it's it's hard for me to make a real judgment on it. I think yeah, it's I don't really know their relationship well enough to understand whether that's just how they. You know, some people can just talk very directly to one another, and it's not taken personally. I think what I took away from it is that Lonzo is a very mature person in that way. Cause man, yeah. like 
he if someone said like if my dad said that to me and i'd be pretty mad i don't know i mean even if you have a good relationship to, to sit there and to like listen to that i think is difficult and i mean i i don't know i think it's easy i don't know it just what I, what bothers me about it is that i don't know i just don't know if like i, I don't want i don't want lavar ball at all involved in you know lonzo's career just because i, th- I think lonzo's got a really good head on his shoulders and and, and so maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's just, you know, look, at, at some point you're seeing that there's going to be a fracture there and that Lonzo's going to handle his own business. But uh, that's, the, that's the only thing that scares me. But, I, again, I don't know their relationship well enough to justify making a judgment on whether or not, you know, that was in bounds or out of bounds or whatever. Right. And LeVar Ball is, uh, to put it nicely, he's flamboyant and he's bold. And he's very assertive. He speaks his mind. And Lonzo Ball really doesn't come off that way. And I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because he's dealt with his father for so many years and maybe his father has kind of uh uh maybe he's kind of grown numb to to his father's antics, I should say. Uh but Lonzo Ball does come off as a, a as a very mature kid. And you know, I I mean, I think that's that's good, right? Right. Yeah, I think so. And I think yeah. – I, I can't remember. I think LeVar had said something really negative about LeBron either when LeBron was on the same team as Lonzo or was about to be or whatever. And I think, you know, I just – it's funny to me. I, th- I wonder what the perception of Lonzo would be today sort of nationwide if LeVar Ball wasn't his father and if people would be labeling him right. a bust the way that they are now. Maybe that doesn't make a difference for more than 10 or 20% of people who watch Lonzo play, but I, I really do say, I mean this when I say it, I, I think Lonzo seems to be a very intelligent player. Um, I, I think he's yes. one of the highest IQ players on the team for sure, I, and I, I really do think he, he's in that upper echelon in the league as well. And I just, he seems like he's just a very well-grounded guy, and I don't really worry about him individually at all. I just hope that his dad doesn't yeah. start drama with his teammates. You know, that's that's all. Right. You don't want him to become a distraction, basically. And the odd part to me about it is that Lon, his father has always kind of propped up his their his children, right? Like LeVar Ball has propped up all of the Ball family with a big, big baller brand. And it seems to me... Maybe when you look on the inside and, you know, you don't know how much the documentary or the, or the series actually shows, but it seems to me like his father does have a little bit of a, a, a tough love way with, with Lonzo. And that can be good. There's nothing wrong with that style of parenting. I mean, who, who are we to judge, right? right. I mean, he, uh, I mean, for all the, the crap that LeVar Ball gets for his, for his, uh, for his antics, I should say, I mean, he, uh, you know, Lonzo Ball seems like a great mature kid who happens to be, you know, a, a pretty dang good basketball player. And uh, Lonzo Ball is not a distraction himself in any way whatsoever. So it's pretty interesting that, you know, you kind of see I, – I thought it was interesting at least to kind of hear LeVar Ball kind of give that uh, positivity about all his children playing basketball and propping them up in the public – but, you know, on one-on-one, it's kind of a tough love thing. And that might be how Lonzo Ball became such a great basketball player. He might re- – everyone responds to situations differently. You just said that if your dad said that to you, you would not take it very well. 
Um, my dad is, uh, he is about that tough love. <laughs> and that is something, yeah, I mean, you know him well. But, uh, I mean, my dad's a great guy. Um, but, it, you know, the way that he taught me was tough love. Like, it, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just about, you know, when you do something good, that's expected. You know, you have to be great. You know, and, and that's that's what it's about. And so I kind of, the, my whole point of this is I didn't have a problem with the way that LeVar Ball said that, oh, that'd be like, you know, us calling you damaged goods. I thought that was kind of a call out for that Le, that Lonzo needs to stay healthy. And I actually think it's a fair assessment. Lonzo has not shown that he can stay healthy in the NBA right now, whether it's his fault or whether it's, you know, just freak incidents or whatever. You know, that's to be determined. But I think that was LeVar Ball's kind of initial react, initial gut way of saying like, hey, you know, you need to, you need to stay healthy or people are going to call you damaged goods. And I think it was kind of just a tough love approach. Oh. And that was something that I, I don't know. I, I didn't have any problem with it whatsoever, honestly. And I know that I know that it's not the best thing for a father to say, but I I don't know. I didn't really disagree that much. So, he needs to prove that he can stay healthy. But see, okay, so here's where I disagree. I don't disagree that tough love is okay. And like I, I had said before, and like you're corroborating, I, I do think that tough love yeah. is, in the right situations, is very useful. Like I, we talked about dads. Yeah. Like Everyone's different. My dad, my dad's very direct, very concise. Like you won't hear more words out of my dad that you than you need to hear. And like when he speaks, you listen. So like in that way, like he would never say like the damaged goods thing. But anyway, getting back to it, what bothered me was the context with which he said it. Like he was responding to Lonzo challenging whether they should change the name. So in that way, it didn't seem like he was trying to give him tough love. It seemed like he was defensive yeah. about changing the name. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a different thing yeah. to me. He was challenging LeVar and I thought LeVar was kind of challenging him too. I, I kind of no saw way. it as like a tick for tack thing. I, I did. I, I did. I mean, it was an unnecessary shot, if you will, but he took offense. Lavar, I thought Lavar took offense to what Lonzo said, and I thought Lonzo might take offense to what Lavar said, and it was kind of an eye for an eye kind of thing. I, I didn't it, look. It obviously wasn't the nicest thing for a father to say, but at the same time, uh, I think it was. You know, if they're in an argument, I think it was a decent comeback. And it, I do think it is an, it's the, the Lonzo's main issue, right? I think if Lonzo can prove that he can stay healthy and prove that he's not damaged goods, then he will, I, I don't want to say flourish, but I think he's going to be a pretty dang good NBA player. But I don't think, I think it's more about like your ability to take constructive criticism. I'm actually surprised to hear you say that because I think you're really good about being impersonal about things. And I think... I know LeVar yeah. has a lot invested in that brand, but I mean, the way that Lonzo challenged him, I mean, I, I think being a good leader, if anything, you have to be receptive to the fact that you are a flawed person and some of your ideas are therefore flawed as well. Like, you're, Oh, definitely. So, I'm not going to sit here and talk about his strategy on his branding. Maybe they should change the name. I don't know. But why is like, so why is it appropriate though, then that for him to challenge in that way, like, right. It just seems like it's an immature response. It wasn't about what he said. It was about yeah. like, what was he really trying to accomplish? You see him saying like, that's what's different to me. And, but again, you know, like we said, like it does, I don't know their relationship. Like maybe, maybe that's the kind of stuff yeah. that Lonzo might say to him off camera. I don't know. I mean, it just what he might've, they might've grown up with that yeah, kind of stuff. I'm know. really not sure. I mean, but yeah, it was immature. I agree. It was immature. I don't, 
I guess my whole point is that I don't really think it was a big deal. Fair I enough. guess I didn't yeah. see a huge. I didn't see a problem with it. Yeah. I, it was immature, though, right? It had to be immature. It was. It wasn't necessary for Lavar to have that type of comeback response. But I guess I just didn't see a huge issue with it. And I certainly don't think it should be, uh, you know, something that like the national media discusses. But here we are, right? Here we are doing it. Uh, you know, kind of culprits there, but. But anyway, uh, let's move on to uh, – before we end the show, let's move on to Lonzo on the court, which you know we kind of did the same thing with Redick here, talked about a bunch of off-court stuff, and then went to how it affects his play on the court. Let's do the same with, Le- Lon- uh, sorry, with Lonzo here. Uh, you wrote an article about Lonzo. It's going to be posted on HoopBall.com. Everyone needs to go check it out if you're listening to this. kind of gets into details about Lonzo Ball as a player. You were researching this article for a while, Michael. Kind of, what are your main takeaways and your main? Uh, what are the main things you figured out that surprised you? I, I think you know, and a lot of the times when I do articles, I'm just digging through stats, and then I'll find something that that I think is interesting. And and I'm a stats guy, but I I think being a good statistician, and I'm not a great one, I don't think, but I I think you really have to be aware that you're not, you're shining the lights in places. You're not trying to make these sweeping conclusions based on, you know, whatever statistic that you're looking at. You're trying to understand things and and corroborate things about the game um, that you see. So like, it's always married to some other context. context. Exactly. Right. Or you, you get provide the context to like, to validate or invalidate or whatever. So with that, I, I like to say that it's a tool in the toolbox yes. or a piece of the puzzle. I agree. It, does, it doesn't say everything, but yeah, but you go on. Yeah, and so you know what I was finding was I, I found this site that I, I can't remember the name of it. Honestly, I have to look back and find it. But it was maybe it's NBA Minor, but they do assist breakdowns and they do it by the type of shot that the player. So like, let's say I'm Lonzo and I pass to you and you dunk it, then that's an assist to a dunk, and they they do these. The, the counts of them. And so what I did is I just scraped it all and, and put into it a spreadsheet and started messing around with it. And, and what I found was, I, I think this was last season, um, but it was basically that Lonzo was assisting about, about 64, I think it was 64% of his assists were to layups or dunks. And what's nice about that, wow. I mean, and, and look, obviously this is all going to depend upon who you're playing with. So like if you're on a team that only shoots threes, you might have a really quote unquote crappy percentage because all, all the people that you pass to, they don't take shots at the rim. Um, but universally, I mean, like layups, I mean, especially if they're uncontested or, or dunks that are uncontested, I mean, that's a pretty amazing shot efficiency-wise. And what, what I see and what I've seen from Lonzo is I think he's really, really good in scramble situations. I actually don't know. I, I'm yet to, to really draw a conclusion on what Lonzo can be as a first creator on an offense. What I'm much more convinced of is that at the worst – He's someone who is just phenomenal in a given situation. You know, the defense is swinging around, and it, once that initial action's happened, you know, people are out of place, and there's these little gaps. And really, really great passers in those moments just have this this sort of intuitive feel for where people are. And and Lonzo to me is exactly that. And I think he's phenomenal about finding people for these easy buckets, and those are huge. And what makes that important on this team is. We don't, like we said a bazillion times, we don't have a lot of shooting. So a lot of these guys, especially at the top of our lineup in terms of the shots taken or who will take the most shots, a lot of them are going to take a lot of shots at the rim. And and teams are going to know that coming in, so they're going to defend against it. So you need someone to maximize that output. And to do that, you need the right kind of passing. 
And I think Lonzo, of all the players that we have, I think he's going to be the one for, for Zion and, and Favors in particular who's finding these guys you know, to get easy buckets. And that's really big for constructing efficient overall offense. Do you think Lonzo Ball might be better in out of structure than he is maybe in structure in a called or set play after a timeout? I see him a lot, and I made this comparison in the article. I see him a lot. I think his floor is really Draymond Green on offense. That's his floor. So, again, I, and, and not a bad place to be. Draymond's someone where I know he gets a lot of credit as a passer, and he is he is a good passer, no doubt about it. But Draymond's someone who, if you give him the ball in a situation where he has to make the right decision or the right, you know, the right read, he's going to make it almost all the time. I think Lonzo's that plus the creativity of a more advanced passer. I think... I don't know. Like, I think he's ahead of where he is as a primary creator in set actions. I, I should rephrase it and say, I think he's better in scramble situations right now and in trans- transition play than he is in set situations. But I, I don't necessarily think that that means he won't be very, very good as the primary point guard on a great team. Cause I think he could grow into that. But I think at the worst, you have a guy who at any given moment, if the play, you know, breaks down or the defense breaks down or whatever, just finding someone like just instinctively, I think he's really, really good at it. I think one of the big reasons that this is important also, you mentioned that uh, we didn't have a lot of shooters, but another reason is because the Pelicans are going to play at a really fast pace, right? They're not going to be playing this slow pace half court basketball where they're, you know, going, you know, you know, low tempo and setting plays and, and really focusing on the half-court game, they're going to be moving. They're going to be transitioning, and that's the kind of stuff, that's the Russell Wilson type of stuff that Lonzo Ball might excel at. I think so, and I, I think we're going to see it unfold over the year, and I, I definitely do think that, I mean, it's transition, again, is probably not going to be any more than 21 22% of their offense. That's that's typically, like, the highest mark in, in any given season. But that's, you know, that's not insubstantial. Is that a word? Unsubstantial. Unsubstantial. And I think... If you can get out and, and really get easy buckets, particularly for an offense that has not a lot of continuity, and Lonzo's outlet passes, which I haven't talked about yet, are just phenomenal. Like his outlets, like Kevin Love, Lonzo. I'm trying to think about other people who are just really, really good at outlet passes. I want to say Jokic. Jokic is always interesting to me, and I don't want to go on a long tangent, but I feel like Jokic's passes, Jokic is brilliant, and he sees things probably faster than I think any other player in the NBA. But his passes aren't always exactly on the mark. It's just that he sees them so quickly that there's such a big window for him to throw them. And he's got such crazy angles right. and stuff like that. And so, anyway, getting back to Lonzo, I, I love Jokic, so excuse me for that. But I th- No, he's a heck of a player. I, Very unique. I think Lonzo is really, really good at outlets. And I think, you know, especially for Zion, who gets up and down the floor really well, favors who does. I think that's going to really help and hopefully alleviate maybe some of the concerns that, you know, hopefully are unfounded, but are probably realistic about the actual shooting on the team. So one of his concerns, of course, is free throw shooting. And you can make the argument that, or at least I will make the argument, that one of the reasons that Lonzo, you know, dishes it out so much is because he might be not afraid of getting fouled, but he would prefer to have a really good assist or an outlet pass here when he's driving than than rather take the foul himself and put the ball, you know, on the on the charity stripe there and have the free throw, which 
He's been a he's really shot horrible percentages from the free throw line uh, in his early career, and I'm wondering if you think that that can maybe improve. And I'm wondering if you kind of agree with the assessment that he might be looking more to pass there uh, when he is driving, or maybe he might actually drive to the basket less because he has less intention of the score and doesn't want to get fouled. And at the same time, we've talked about this before, Michael, you and I have off air, how during the playoffs, and I'm ho- we're both hoping the Pelicans make the playoffs, and they might, uh, during the playoffs, teams seem to clamp down, or not just clamp down on defense in general, but they seem to really know how to attack and how to um, how to really make that uh, point guard that can't shoot more of a liability, right? Do you know what I'm trying to say there? Like yeah. in the playoffs, that really stands out as a weakness there. You don't really see it much in the regular season, but it really comes out in the playoffs when teams are clamping down and really – focusing in on your weakness and I'm wondering if his inability to not only uh you know be an efficient shooter but also mainly be an efficient free throw shooter because I think that kind of prevents him from driving as much as he should I'm wondering if you think that that is curable and if you agree that that's a big weakness I think free throw shooting is curable but it depends on what we mean by cure I mean if you're saying he's going to shoot 80 percent I would probably say you're crazy no. But I, if you're talking about someone who maybe goes closer to 67, 70, 75, I mean, it's possible. And I, I think I'd love to see him in the 70s. That would be amazing. But I mean, I, I, you know, what are my expectations? One of the things that's interesting about him, and I can't remember the exact mark in college, but he shot. So between college and pros, so much stuff changes. But what doesn't change is a free throw. And it's not like you're defended. Right. You know, you might be more tired in the NBA because it's a, a more hectic game or whatever. Your legs might go dead or whatever. But I mean, it's the same shot, and he shot a lot better in college. He hasn't been, like you said, he has been hurt, which isn't great, but at the same time, that also means that we have a lower sample size than we would have otherwise. I think a lot of it might be confidence. I, I just, I mean, to be frank, there are a lot of players who are poor free throw shooters in games who are much better in practice, and it is the same shot. Now, again, the difference is that you're in the middle of a game, your legs are tired, you're, you know, all that stuff, but... definitely. I don't. I think it's way too early to say Lonzo will never develop a decent shot. Whether that affects how he drives to the goal, I would expect that it does to some degree. I, th- I think that's got to be in the back of your mind, especially if your confidence at all wavers as a shooter. I think you don't want to be put in a situation where you're doing what you're not very good at or what you're not confident about. So I, I probably affects it. Well, does it affect it enough for me to be worried about him in the playoffs? No, because I think Lonzo contributes enough. Like, let's just pretend, okay? So someone like Thabo Cephalosha, you know, who, when he was with OKC, he affected their offense poor, like, in a bad way in the playoffs. They'd sag off of him. They wouldn't defend him. He was a phenomenal defender himself, so he, he contributed on that end of the floor, but he's basically non... He just wasn't good at offense. I think the difference between him right. and someone like Lonzo... Lonzo might not ever be the individual lockdown defender he is, but I think Lonzo is already a very good defender. I think he'll be a great defender. And I think Lonzo, at the worst, again is going to impact the game in so many ways on offense that aren't related to scoring that I, I'm not as worried about it because I think he'll find another way to contribute versus someone who can't pass or shoot and who's therefore just a, a, an ultimate, like, the worst liability on offense. The simple comparison offensively that I've heard being made but I hate it is you don't want Lonzo Ball to become Rajon Rondo. 
right, on from just from an offensive perspective, okay, as somebody who's going to pass up shots and pass up driving just to, you know, prop up his assist numbers, a great passer. Uh, but what are, what are the main differences you see? What would, how would you dispel that comparison? I think the biggest difference is that Lonzo doesn't have sticky hands like Rondo has. I think that's actually my my most frustrating thing about watching Rondo is that guy has the ball in his hands so much. And I think there's people who yeah. move the ball and there's people who hold on to the ball. And obviously there can be someone who moves in between those two sort of capacities. But if I had to pick one, I, I much prefer ball movers because if you don't have people who will, I mean, Harden is like, like maybe the, the most interesting example of this is that Harden, when he has the ball, like he, their offense is so slow and just dragged out. Um, he's phenomenal. So like, you know, no, nothing against him, but I think in the playoffs, his offenses yeah. have actually always graded out pretty poorly in the playoffs. And I think one of the reasons is, it's really hard to create against great defenses where there's not a lot of motion and action. I think they're just too smart to figure it out, especially when you're in the playoffs. So I think I honestly believe that it's, it's very hard to be someone who has sticky hands and holds onto the ball too long and be successful in the playoffs. The notable exception of course, being LeBron who is just like next level passer and also awesome at like everything at this point. So yeah. Next level, everything yeah, yeah, there. Just a, a uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's amazing how much of a ball hog Rondo is. Yet, you know, he's still dishing out all kinds of assists. So on on this on this on, on the box score, he doesn't look like a ball hog. He looks like the opposite as such. But when you're watching the game, you really are like, gosh. I mean, Rondo really likes <laughs> dribbling, man. Right. I mean, he really likes having the ball in his hand. And I think Lonzo is is just a smarter player. I think sometimes Rondo can be so uh, – see, it's hard to call him selfish or unselfish because I think the way he plays is actually selfish. But from an outsider's perspective, it looks unselfish, if that makes sense. You know what I'm trying to yeah. say there? Uh, but I think sometimes Rondo actually puts his team in a worse position because he do- he is uh, so kind of selfish with the basketball uh, even though conventional wisdom says that he's unselfish when he's passing, but he—he's a different—he's a different breed. Like he—he's tough to figure out. But but Lonzo Ball to me uh, seems like a much has a much higher basketball IQ. I think their I think their IQs are fairly similar, but I think how they manifest one is much more. Uh, what? Well, it's weird because like he is. I think they see the game the same way. I think the difference is that Lonzo relinquishes yeah. control. So in that way, like effectively, like you're yeah, saying, okay. like his IQ might be similar, but I, I think you're right that it it doesn't translate as well because of his tendency to hold on to the ball too much. So yeah, I yeah. Gotcha. Okay, well, yeah, I just wanted to dispel that notion there because I've seen that comparison made on Twitter a couple times, just just from an offensive perspective, that they don't want Lonzo Ball to end up being like Ronjo. Uh, sorry, Rajan, I combined his names there, uh, Rajan Rondo. And, uh, it, you know, especially, you know, I know Rondo was a good playoff player, but teams can attack that weakness in the sure. playoffs. So, uh, but, but yeah, I, but that's all we have for today. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to on the fly, the official new Orleans Pelicans podcast for hoopball.com. This is your in-flight insight for the sharpest Pella fans. We'll be back next week. We're going to talk about the rookie expectations and we're going to have a special guest on next week, actually too. And, uh, we can't wait for that next Tuesday. So we'll see you soon. Lock up.
This has been a hoop ball presentation. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.